Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. Little ones through age 4 can be dismissed to Children's Church if you'd like your little ones to be there, or you can keep them with you if you'd like as well. It's good to be back together in the Word today. It's been a few weeks since we have been in this letter. Several weeks ago, we had our training in evangelism, and following that, we had our Easter services, Friday and Sunday, two services. So it's been several weeks. Just like to uh, like you to listen to this old Anglican prayer. I read this uh, last week, and I just thought it'd be good to pass on to you. It says, "Father, what we know not, teach us; what we have not, give us; what we are not, make us." In Jesus' name, amen. It's pretty good, isn't it? I think that still applies today, doesn't it? What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. That's our prayer today. As we dig back into this letter, it's my prayer for you and for me as the Lord takes his word and conforms us to its image that we might come away with a better understanding of his nature, a better understanding of what Jesus has done, uh, a better understanding of what ministry models look like as we look at the Apostle Paul and his interaction with this church. And so that's my joy to do that with you today. Turn in your copy, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're picking up in verse 15. We're going to read through verse 24. Uh, the, the theme carries on into chapter 2, just a few verses, but I think you'll get the, the sense of it as we just read through 15 through 24. You can find a copy of uh, the Bible I'm reading in the pew at the back of the chair in front of you, or read in your copy of God's Word in your, on your tablet or your phone or whatever. And I'll give you some verse cues we could stay together. It's my joy, of course, to continue to encourage you to be in the Word each day. Uh, there on the welcome table, we have a, a trifold that helps you do just that. So if you want to have a rich understanding and a thorough, uh, begin to have a thorough knowledge, a comprehensive knowledge of what Scripture has to say, then use uh, your year each day to read through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it'll give you some reading uh, passages to see on target where you can finish that up at the end of the year and come away with a richer understanding of uh, understanding who the Lord is, how he interacts with people uh, cr throughout the ages. He's still the same when he promises something once, he promises it forever. It helps you be able to combat false teaching. It helps you to be able to establish the holy standard in your life. There's just so many benefits that come from the consistent uh, reading. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. In order for that to happen, it's going to take a commitment on your part. It's probably take a month or so for you to become... Uh, help that become a habit in your life to be in the Word each day, but a well-invested month which will pay rich dividends in the, in the years to come. So picking up at verse 15, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, verse 16, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea, verse 17. Therefore... I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I propose to do, do I propose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also, through him, 
is our amen to the glory of God through us. Verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you're standing firm. Let's stop right there. Obviously, some difficulty there in Corinth. Some accusations. As you read, it just seems like, what in the world is this? Which typically, all arguments back up into, or disagreements back up into, what were we talking about to begin with, and why was it so important? And so I think as you read that, you're probably thinking, what is going on, and why is he answering that way? And, and so my joy uh, for this next couple of weeks is really take you through that and to really pull out, I think, the main things that Paul wants us to come away with, uh, not only to understand what the accusations were, but how he responds to them. As we've, seen, as, we've, as we've seen, as we've looked in this letter, as in comparison to 1 Corinthians, where Paul just really takes on each problem and says, stop doing that, start doing this. Paul instead here really shows his heart as he addresses the issues. And it's a really refreshing change. Although both are needed, it's nice to see Paul come from a different perspective. And that's what we're going to see this time. But our first stop uh, last time in our new section uh, we took some time to look at a very important part of Paul's walk uh, as we think about his testimony, and that important part was Paul's conscience. And perhaps as I talked about conscience this last time, maybe that's the first time you've thought about that in a while, or you've heard about it and you understand something of it. But I think it's a super important topic, and Paul continues to refer to it, and so we're going to do that as well. He uses his conscience as proof of his integrity and sincerity in his ministry to them. And the scripture puts a lot of emphasis on conscience, perhaps more than you had realized before. Perhaps now in your reading of the word of God, you've seen that word conscience pop out and you've begun to take a look at it. But it is the noun synodesis. It means to know along with or have co-knowledge with oneself. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? It's that thing in a person that recognizes wrong and argues for the right, rather in the, right, either in themselves or in others. And we saw really a simple definition of conscience is a thought process that argues with the host thinker. So independent of the thoughts that are going on in the mind of the host thinker is this other thought process, the conscience, that God has placed in the hearts of every single person who has ever been born. And so I'll refer you back to our several weeks ago as we kind of shored that up so you can understand uh, why that's true. But Paul starts out this section, so back up to verse 12. Paul starts out this section, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. In other words, Paul says we lived like we were supposed to live, so we have a clear conscience. And that becomes the basis for his defense against whatever accusations there are. Now that seems very subjective, doesn't it? However, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on this clear conscience, so Paul then can rest a very heavy load on it, on this foundation of conscience, and say with a, with a, with a pure heart to them that, hey, you may have some accusations against me, but my conscience is clear. And everything we've done, Paul says, we've done it with a clear conscience. And you can pick out some of the issues he knew were still there as we looked at verse 12. Paul is sinful, he's hiding something, but Paul says, you know, it's my proud confidence that in holiness... Uh, I have conducted myself with you. So Paul's not sinful. He says, I have a clear conscience about holiness. Paul isn't genuine. He has some kind of agenda. We can't trust him. Paul says, listen, I've conducted myself in my conscience before you in godly sincerity. And then Paul's a false teacher uh, because 
they, they assume he's talking in fleshly wisdom. Paul says, I'm not talking in fleshly wisdom. I'm talking about through the grace of God and not conducted ourselves in fleshly wisdom. So it's not that Paul didn't sin. It's just that he responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Additionally, he, rep- he responded to his conscience, which was constantly being informed by the word of God. And so he could follow the warning system in his conscience. And so he could say, I have confidence that I've dealt with you in the right way. And my conscience in that respect is clear. So he didn't want to turn his conscience off. He didn't want to cover it with calluses or sear it, which is possible to do. And we looked at that several weeks ago, and I'd refer you back there again to see how that can happen. He wanted it fully operational. He relied on it. It's, it's a wonderful gift. He knew this. He wants us to know this. That God has given every individual, and Paul wanted his fully deployed. Now, you may not have thought a lot about your conscience until we began to talk about it. I think Paul's emphasis on it and the emphasis we find in the Word of God creates an important application point, and that is this, for us to learn or to verify that we are living sensitively and responsibly to what our conscience says. Paul's emphasis shows that this kind of accountability is part of the foundation of spirituality, because you can fool anybody, but you can't fool your conscience, not a fully informed conscience. We, as Paul illustrated for us, are to listen to conscience, and the Word of God helps us to fully inform our conscience. For instance, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Um, and this, we looked at this some time ago. I just wanted to look at it and give it a cursory look because of the time of year we're in, and you'll see why I'm saying this in just a moment. But we're, we're going to see how the Bible fully informs our conscience. Sometimes it says... Uh, for conscience sake, and sometimes it just says, do this, and so we know that as we do those things and assimilate them in our life that we're living with a clear conscience. But here, it's very clear, and I'm going to pick out a few to illustrate so that it'll be helpful for you really to establish this foundation. But here in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says this, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So then I think it's pretty clear, uh, whatever authority of government you live under, you're supposed to come into submission to it. So we render to God those things that are God's. So in, in the point that the government infringes upon the things we owe to God, we don't owe them to the government anymore. But in general, the rules and laws and those things that are over us from the government apply to us. That would be all the way down to speed limits. Okay, so everything in between those things would include all of those things, certainly. And so when we resist authority, who are we resisting? We're resisting God uh, because those that are in authority are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So you can't make an excuse for whatever you do that's against the law unless it infringes God's law. Okay, so and in addition to that, Paul says, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then he says this, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. And I'll just make it simple. You don't have to keep looking in your rearview mirror or ahead of you around the curve if you're doing the speed limit, okay? And then you can just go up from there, whatever it happens to be part of your life. They're not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is the minister of God to you for good, that if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now mark this next part because this is where we really collect, uh, collect this idea and understanding of what the conscience is and what it looks like to be fully informed. So verse five says this, therefore, 
it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for, catch it, conscience sake. Verse 6, for because of this, because of what? Because of a fully informed conscience, for conscience sake, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So, in other words, if you want to be able to have a clear conscience, not a conscience that's seared or calloused, do the things that Paul just said, not just because you may get into trouble for not doing them, okay, and suffer as an evildoer, as we looked at before. So if you disobey the law, you may get in trouble for that. Peter says, don't be caught suffering as an evildoer. Don't let that part be part of your life. Paul reiterates that here and says, listen, if you disobey the laws of the land, you don't submit to those who have authority over you as they have authority over you, not God's authority, but that part that the government has. If you don't submit to those things, understand that you may get in trouble for that. And that's the right thing, Paul says, because they have authority. So if you want to have a clear conscience, not a seared or callous conscience, not, you know, do the things that Paul has said, not because you're going to get in trouble for not doing them and suffer as an evildoer, but because doing them, catch it, puts you in obedience to the word of God. So you have a fully informed conscience on what you're supposed to do. So as you pay your taxes and you obey the laws and you do the things you're supposed to do, you then can have a fully informed conscience that says, yes, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It's not conflicting with your thoughts. Your thoughts are saying, this is what I need to do. The conscience is saying, yes, this is what you're supposed to do. You understand the Holy Spirit's witnessing along with that. You're not quenching the Holy Spirit by disobeying the word of God. And all those things are in harmony for the believer. See? There's no accusing conscience then as you stand before men. There's no accusing conscience as you stand before God. Okay? So you cheat on your taxes. You have a guilty conscience. That's how it works. You take deductions you shouldn't have, you, you, you say you spent money you didn't spend, whatever that is. There's no way you can have a, get a clear conscience and do that, okay? And Paul wanted us to make that clear as he talks about the rings of authority that are over us, and this is one of them, okay? So just very, very, very practical. I love this. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. All of these, I think, um, will be very beneficial to you as we think about it. Paul, Paul, as speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, but the goal of our instruction... Now catch this. So Paul says, as you're teaching, and at this point, Timothy is in Ephesus, as you're teaching this church, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and catch this, a good conscience and sincere faith. So Paul teaches and has instructed Timothy to teach with the goal of producing in his hearers love from a pure heart, katharos, a katharos heart. That's a heart that has the impurities stripped away. It's where we get our words related to the word, the English word catharsis. So a heart set on serving brothers and sisters in Christ. A pure heart, okay? And then, secondly, a good conscience. And we've seen this word over and over again. This is the conscience, again, fully informed by the Word of God, functioning as a check and a balance, triggering correctly, not callous, not seared. Now, here's the thing. So, as we read, as we read the Word of God, as Paul teaches the Word of God, as Timothy teaches the Word of God, Paul says, one of our goals is to make sure that, they are, that, that people understand what things they are to do in the world, and in the church, and in the family, and in the private life, and so on and so on, whatever it is, whatever the Word of God addresses, Paul says our goal is to make sure that what we're teaching produces or can produce in the life of the believer, be they willing, love from a pure heart, and a good conscience. So in the private life, in the family life, in the church, in the world, whatever it is, doing the things the Word of God has said, and so 
in doing them in such a way as to have no accusing conscience. So to be able to say, as I understand the word of God, I am doing these things in my life. It is my determination to do them. I agree that they're correct. And I'm going to conform my life and conform my thoughts and conform my actions in the world to these behaviors. Paul says, Timothy, when you teach, when I teach, we want love from a pure heart. We want a good conscience and we want a sincere faith. That is the adjective apocritos. That's no hypocrisy. So compound word. We looked at the other word that's part of this. It has, it has to do with playing an actor on a stage. So th that's the opposite of that. Paul says a sincere faith. That's a faith uh, that isn't playing a part. So it's an unfeigned faith, a faith without dissimulation. So there's no, there's no other part going on or some shell on the outside that appears to be faith and then inside a whole other life happening. Paul says, when you teach, Timothy, when I teach, there's three things I want to make sure happen. Love from a pure heart. So as they accept that teaching, they'll be able to act on love from a pure heart. They'll be able to have a good conscience so that we'll teach the word of God as they understand it. Not a grand suggestion, but these are the words of the Lord and we're to do them. God's commands are for us, not for him. We obey what he says. And then thirdly, a sincere faith, a faith without any kind of dissimulation. So it's the goal of instruction in the church to produce those things. So very straightforward. Conscience, again, plays a major part in the response or what we would like to the response to be as a teacher of the church. You want that response to be able to be a clear conscience, which is why, again, I think Paul tells Timothy, be not many teachers for theirs is the greater condemnation. Why? Because in the, in the, in the result of your teaching, if you're teaching incorrectly or misrepresenting the word of God, the response then will not be able to be a clear conscience because you won't understand what it was that the, God, that the Lord, had, Lord had expected you to do. You see? And so there's always an application. How, what does the word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? Now, how does that apply to me? Now we apply that, see? Now, we see Peter talk about it, 1 Peter 2, 19. And I'm saying it, I want to talk about it enough times because Paul continues to refer to it all the way through this book. And I think it's important for us to regenerate our understanding and have that application we talked about before, which is a sensitivity and a responsiveness to the conscience because Paul just uses it as the proof of solid ministry. My conscience is clear. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. Peter talks about it, 1 Peter 2.19. He says this. For this finds favor, if for, catch this, conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So let's sum it up, and then we'll look at what else Peter had to say. So in general, to have a good conscience before the Lord, what do you have to do? Bear up under sorrows, suffering unjustly. So at the point where you are falsely accused, however that's going to play out, Okay, where you're suffering and you shouldn't be, someone has done something wrong to you and you bear up under that well, that's a good conscience before the Lord. So just in a general statement, you can say a clear conscience before the Lord will be that when you're falsely accused and you bear up under it well, which means that, uh, and I'm skipping forward a little bit, which means that you're not impugning God's character by saying or thinking, why me? All these things are against me. This is so unfair. Okay. You're not saying any of those things. So bearing up well means that you're not saying those things or thinking those things. So you're under a difficult time, no doubt, and you're bearing up well and saying, Lord, you know, this is, this is your will for my life at this point. You're going to produce in me patient endurance, and, and, and patient endurance is going to, to create proven character and proven character hope that we looked at uh, very thoroughly back uh, early in the, the first chapter. So Peter says, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience. So in other words, if you're suffering for an evildoer 
as an evildoer, you do something wrong, you break God's law, you break man's law, and you're suffering for that, and you bear up under that faithfully, there's no credit towards God for that, okay? Because you're not supposed to be suffering as an evildoer to begin with, okay? So here's the deal. So what credit is there if when you suffer up uh, under sorrows, when, what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated and endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So what can we come away with? Well, here it is. In other words, when you suffer for wickedness sake and you endure it with patience, there's no credit of a clear conscience before God. But if like Paul and Peter and others, thousands of others, millions of others throughout the ages, and very straightforward, easily understood, when you have patient endurance during unjust suffering, this establishes a clear conscience before God. A fully informed conscience will understand that when you're falsely accused and you suffer under it well, and you're not impugning God's character, not bringing an accusation against him, saying, why are you doing this to me, Lord? When you're doing that, then you have a clear conscience before God. See, this is very straightforward, okay? This is not, it seems very subjective, but the conscience is fully informed by the word, so it isn't really subjective, very objective. Here's what your conscience should respond to. So, your conscience knows, well, here's the deal, and this is so fantastic. So the more informed your conscience is, then I can say this to you and understand it for myself. Your conscience knows what nobody else can know, okay? Your conscience knows how you're dealing with your taxes. Your, notes, your conscience knows how you're driving your, your car. Your conscience knows how you're dealing under difficult circumstances, see? Your conscience knows what no one else can know. You know about yourself things only the Lord knows. You may have responded in your mind to a difficult situation in a way that is not bearing up well under difficult times and does not have a good conscience before God, and your conscience will speak to that, and nobody else will know that because you can fool anybody you want, but you can't fool a fully informed conscience. That's why it's so important. You know about yourself things only the Lord knows, and he knows that you know, and he measures your response. Now, hold your finger first in 2 Corinthians 1.15. Turn here. 1 Corinthians 8.7. This is a great passage. And it's just two passages here, 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. So hold your finger. We'll be right back to our passage. But this is a fantastic information for conscience, which has some complexity to it. I want you to see two consciences both coming in conflict here. This is a marvelous passage. Um, and really, to sum it up, we're going to be warned that a fully informed conscience, which is doing exactly what it should do, can be responsible for harming someone through their misinformed conscience. So it can be two battles of informed consciences, okay? And I love this. We looked at this some time ago. We'll just kind of give it a once over here. Paul's dealing with freedom in Christ, and he says this. Verse 7, he says, however, look there with me, 1 Corinthians 8, 7, however, not all men have this knowledge. Now, I'll just sum that up for you. That's the knowledge that idols are nothing, okay? Nobody's home. So, in other words, there's a whole bunch of idols, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, a whole bunch of idols in all kinds of temples. Paul says an idol is nothing in this world. So, nobody home in the temple, nobody receiving the sacrifice, nothing's happening in there. It makes no difference. There's only one God, and we know who he is, and he isn't living in Athena's temple, okay, or she is not there. There's nobody home there. Now, there's demonic activity. We understand all the stuff that's going on there. We've talked about that, but in the... the the basic thing is this, what's offered to an idol in a temple is not offered to anything or anyone because no one's home. That's the knowledge, Paul says, that you have. However, he says, not all men have this knowledge, but some, he says, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and catch this, their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, in six verses, Paul uses the word conscience three times. I think it's a pretty important topic. 
Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, so I won't comment on that. Verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, and nor the better if we do. Verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, what knowledge? That an idol is nothing in the world and nobody's home in the temples. You have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his, here again, conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined and the brother for whom sake Christ died. Verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Now let's stop right there. Let's sum up the situation. So you have a new believer in the fellowship. Okay, we're not talking about worldly people. We're not talking about people outside the church. We're talking about people inside the church and how you deal with them. Okay, so a new believer in the fellowship whose conscience is still misinformed. In other words, they, at a previous time, rejected the truth for a lie, worshiped the created thing rather than the creator who's forever blessed. Amen, right? Romans chapter one. They, they were willingly ignorant of God and began to embrace the worship of the created thing. So we understand that process. That's how all idol worship begins. It's a descent into idol worship because every person has the knowledge of God. Remember we talked about this? People say, well, people who are worshiping idols and in other temples are just kind of looking for God. No, the Bible says the opposite of that. The Bible says everybody has knowledge of God. Everybody understands a little bit of God's nature and all men have the conscience stamped on their heart and all men have the knowledge of God and they are willingly ignorant and decide they're going to worship the created thing rather than the creator. Okay, so that's the switch. So that's what's happened. And so this person, that's what they did back in their past. And they stopped listening to the voice of the conscience that was arguing initially against the worship of idols. Catch it? So initially when they decided to go worship in Athena's temple and do all the things connected to it, their initial conscience that the God, God has put on everybody's heart argued against it. But they informed themselves continuously in falseness, didn't they? And we looked at this a couple weeks ago. So, they stopped listening to the voice of the conscience. It was arguing against the worship of idols. But over time, the conscience began to be informed by false worship. That's what ended up happening. That was informing their conscience now what needs to be done in the temple of Athena. And rules of conduct in the pagan temple became their rules of conduct. Okay? And so they come to Christ. And their conscience is now being, beginning to be informed correctly. Okay, now they have the word of God informing their conscience. They're sitting under the teaching of Paul or Apollos or whoever's there, and they're beginning to understand this re-informing their conscience, renewing their mind, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that this is happening, okay? And so it's beginning to be informed correctly, but it's still triggering sometimes on the wrong things. And at some point, a believer with a fully informed conscience, he has knowledge that there's nothing in any of these temples and there never has been, walks into a pagan meat market where the idol offerings are sold, and this is slightly used meat, and so he buys a couple of T-bones and a big old roast at a discounted price, and he's loving life. And he heads on home with the meat, or he sits there and he eats it, okay? And he's not thinking anything about it. Why? Because it just passed through the temple, and nobody was home, and it came out the backside, and it's a little bit used, and I get to buy it at a drastically reduced price, and I'm going to take it home, my family's going to eat, and we're going to keep inside our budget, no big deal, okay? Now, whose conscience is correctly informed? The second person, right? Nobody's home in the idol. The idol doesn't offer anybody. We can buy it. It's not a big deal. You know, he has knowledge. He has a fully informed conscience. And we're going to see that in just a minute, okay? But this is the guy who's fully informed conscience. However, he's not right in doing what he's doing. 
Paul says, listen, his conscience is telling him, this other guy, not to eat this meat because it's connected to the worship of idols and he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. So his conscience is still saying, and he thinks it's right, all right, I don't want anything to do with these idols. But it's still, it's still triggering on the fact that somebody was home and it got offered to somebody and now it's defiled and I'm not taking it in. So it's beginning to be correctly informed, but it's not there yet, but it's saying some of the right things. And your conscience is telling you, why shouldn't I buy this meat at a discount? An idol isn't anything, and so you go ahead and buy it, and you eat it, and you offer it to this new believer. And what happens is, Paul says in verse 7, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay? Their conscience being weak is defiled. So your fully informed conscience, then, can defile someone's weak conscience so that neither of your consciences, catch this, will be clear. See, even though yours is fully informed and you understand the knowledge that you need and you have the word of God backing you up, you can still be not have a clear conscience because of some of your actions, you see? So it's complex. So with this uncertain feeling, this connection to the idol that still makes its way into this new believer's thoughts, see, his conscience tells him, you know, don't do that. There's that little voice in there arguing with his thought process. Don't do that. That's part of paganism. You can't touch that. That's part of the stuff offered to Athena. So his conscience tells him not to do it, and he sees some in the church do it, and so he goes and he does it. And Paul says what happens is his conscience then is defiled from the verb maluno, present, active, present passive indicative. Um, what does it mean? His conscience is polluted contaminated. It's stained by you, he's, uh, Paul says. His conscience begins to make him feel sinful, even though he isn't sinful, see? Because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. His conscience is warning him to stay away. His conscience makes him feel guilty. It begins to make him feel condemned. He begins to make him feel like he's failed God with the accompanying sorrow that goes along with it, see? And it could perhaps cause him to feel resentment towards the Christian brother who set the pattern that he followed. It could create some division in the body. There's all kinds of things. Might push him deeper into legalism and rulemaking for his life. See, because that's not spirituality either, is it? Let's just obey all these rules and we'll be spiritual. Rules are not spiritual. Spiritual is spiritual. So I'm going to make all these rules in my life so I make sure I don't do any of those things. That's not a fully informed conscience. That's just rulemaking and legalism, see? Maybe it's going to fall, cause him to fall deeper into weakness. Maybe it'll set up some kind of temptation. Maybe he's going to go backward into the trappings of the immorality that accompanied idol worship because he ate the meat. And he's like, well, you know, I guess that's not a big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal to do the other things. So he gets in a very bad situation, all because he violated that conscience that God hadn't finished remaking yet, see? And so then Paul in full form, switch over to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul in full form, this is one of those marvelous parts when we talk about conscience, where we get to talk about a lot of things that deal with conscience. So we can really uh, firm up this foundation of why we do this from time to time. So 1 Corinthians 10, 25, look there. So in full form, Paul makes sure that everyone knows how the conscience should trigger when it's rightly informed, okay? And so he makes this categorical statement at the beginning. So he doesn't want the person with a weak conscience to stay there. They're not right, okay? Now they're going in the right direction, but triggering on the wrong things. Their conscience is beginning to be remade, but it isn't there yet. And the church doesn't stay in weakness just because two or three are weak. Okay? Everybody's supposed to move towards maturity. And so Paul just says this. Look at verse 20, uh, 25. He says this. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Paul says, listen, for both of you, if you want to eat something in the meat market, just buy it. Don't ask, hey, was this offered to an idol? 
Just don't even ask that question. Paul says, you want to correctly walk in a correctly, uh, you want to correctly walk in an, un, uh, in an unaccusing conscience, then just buy anything in the meat market and don't ask any questions for conscience sake. Okay? For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So in other words, whatever it is you're buying, it ultimately belongs to whom? To the Lord. He's the one who supplied it. Okay? Everything in the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So another situation. So you're out in the community and you bump into somebody who's not a believer and they want to take you to their house and they want to feed you or they want to take you out the back of the idol temple and there's a restaurant there where you sit down and have dinner with me. What's, what's Paul say? If you want a fully informed conscience and you want it to act correctly, just go and don't ask any questions about where this meat came from. So who's this for? Both of them, okay? Both of them. You don't have to ask. And if you've got that weak conscience and the Lord's re remaking that, just go and don't ask any questions for conscience sake. Why? Back to the previous verse. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Whatever you're going to eat, you're, it comes from him, okay? That's a fully informed conscience triggering correctly. Now, he gives some qualifications. Look at verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, what are you supposed to do? Don't eat it. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Whose conscience? I mean, Paul says, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? In other words, Paul says, listen, if someone says to you, this is meat offered to idols, there's obviously a problem already in their mind, right? I don't want to mess you up, but you know, this was, this was offered to an idol. At that point, you just say, okay, well, I won't eat it. And then everybody's good, right? You're not, you're not stepping on anybody's almost formed conscience, and you're not violating it, and you're not hurting anybody's feelings, and your conscience is fully informed. Paul says, listen, if you want some rules of conduct, there they are. They're very specific rules for conduct regarding freedom in Christ if each believer wants to have a clear conscience. So it's not so simple to have a fully informed conscience. You have to understand the nuances that come through this interaction between believers and non-believers and new Christians and very mature Christians. And so this is very important. So when Paul says, I, I'm confident of my conscience before you that it's clear, he's saying a lot. He's taking it a pretty broad, a broad swath behind him. So a fully informed conscience based on the word of God dwelling richly in the believer is going to create a point of accountability greater than any other, but you're going to have to read the word to know what it says, see? And it's not complex. It's not hard to understand. You just have to understand, you just have to read it and say, okay, well, that makes sense, especially if it says for conscience sake. You, you have to understand right at that point, if you want to stand before people and before the Lord and say, I have a clear conscience, I'm not, I'm not worried, as Paul said, even about Jesus coming again. And he's going to judge me in the BBC judgment. My conscience is clear. So then that means you are fully informed and you're acting on what that conscience is telling you to do. Because people get very good at fooling every other person around them, but they cannot fool their conscience. And there are things that others cannot know and never will know, and my conscience knows them full well. And the vice versa is true. There are indictments that your conscience can make against you, and no one in the world can make them besides your conscience. Because, and that's why I say conscience is that highest human court. A fully informed conscience is the highest human court. There are things I'll never know about you that your conscience convicts you of and you act on. And I'll never know that, see, and vice versa. 
So when a man can say, I have a testimony of my conscience bearing me witness, he has appealed at the highest possible level. See? That's the purest point of human accountability. Now, flip back, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 1. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, then, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. And, and, uh, and those two together are just one, and it's a noun that means boast. Paul, perhaps, Timothy, Silvanus, we know Titus, uh, can boast in the conscience, and it's clear. And then what happens in the next 12 verses, and really throughout the course of the letter, is that Paul addresses these issues of whether he is sinful, whether he's genuine, whether he's a false teacher, with his conscience. That's his first stop. My conscience is clear. I have no convicting conscience on any of these things. Regardless of what you may assume about me, what you may imagine to be true, the accusations you may make against me, I have a clear conscience. See? And to be able to say that is going to require a careful study of the Word of God, a fully informed conscience, the Holy Spirit there that's not being quenched, all acting in accordance with this renewed mind of yours that you get because you're new in Christ, acting on the things that the Word of God says. What does it say? What does it mean? How does that apply to me? So, we can boast in our conscience. Our conscience is clear. Paul says, now I'm going to use that really as the basis to really help us tell you that I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now, um, Paul got the standard, of course, from 1 Corinthians 4. We looked at that last time, and I'll just refer you back where he, he says he's a servant, he's a steward of the mysteries of God, he's faithful in doing those things. And that becomes the foundation of his conscience, that he's interacting with the church as he should. I won't go through that again. But in 2 Corinthians 1, really 13 through, through 24, he comes back to this issue of teaching and his underworld's position and his servant's position and his steward of the resources of God. And he does all these things. He brings all these things to bear. And you keep these in mind now because I've, we've laid this foundation. As he comes and he begins to deal with the church as they're accusing him of things and he, he has this basis of, of this clear conscience that he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, verse 13 says this. And here we saw they're accusing Paul of being a false teacher, having an agenda. Paul answers them. He says, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you'll understand it until the end. Paul says, what I'm saying is what I've always been saying. Uh, this is his integrity answer. Listen, I haven't changed my, my tune. I ha this is no double meaning. I don't have an agenda. And so as they attack Paul's agenda, he just says, listen, I have a clear conscience. Okay, I have a clear conscience. Then verse 14, look there. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we, were, we are your reason to be proud as you, are, you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And this is Paul's second answer to this integrity question. Instead of being ashamed of Paul and critical of Paul and Timothy and Titus and Silvanus, they have reason to be proud of him and all God's accomplished through him. Here's Paul's longing as he looks at the church and just see his heart. He says this, you know, I'm proud of you. I, I love you. I'm grateful for what the Lord's done in your life. I want, you know, I want you to revere me the same way, Paul says. You can really see the heartache of Paul. Among other places, you can hear Paul say, do you have any idea how much I've labored over you? And then that third answer is right there, too, to integrity. In spite of everything he's endured, he has a clear conscience that he'll be recognized by this church on the day of Christ. So Paul says, listen, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm not afraid to even see Jesus. Jesus is going to come and say, yes, you've done exactly what you were supposed to do. So his conscience is clear concerning what the Lord has called him to do as an under rower, as a servant. His conscience is clear in his testimony to the watching world. His conscience was clear concerning how he discharged his duty in the church. So his integrity is intact. He has no fear of the return of Christ. And that's how clear his conscience was. And then he addresses this accusation of Paul isn't sincere. He's not trustworthy. We can't rely on him. Look at verse 15. So Paul says, in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. In what confidence? The confidence of his clear conscience. Okay, so again, he just refers back to it. He just says, listen, 
You're making an accusation against me, and I'll just tell you that my conscience is clear. You think I'm insincere. You think I have some kind of agenda. You think I'm untrustworthy. I'll tell you that my conscience witnesses the opposite of what you're saying. Paul's not shy. He isn't shaken by their accusations. That doesn't mean he's not hurt by them. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a longing in his heart and, and hardship certainly is on him. And he has to bear up under false accusations and all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't shrink from giving them an answer to their doubt. And in doing that, catch this, and this is the marvelous part of this, even though it seems so complex. The marvelous part of this is that he's going to show his heart to them, and we're going to get to see some character traits of Paul revealed in his answers, and then that will be, of course, a model for us as we think about ministry. Now, let's, uh, we read this first part of this passage, and if you're like me, you think, you know, what is the big deal? So let's, uh, let's identify it. So look there if you would. I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. Verse 16, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So here's the issue, and you can see it. It's he's promised to come to them twice and he didn't come. Okay? Now, that doesn't seem to be such a big deal and yet... Uh, it is from this observation on their part that the destruction of his character has sprung up. So they did, he said he was going to come, he didn't come, and so this is a pretty big deal, even though it seems minor. Paul knows it's a big deal. Those that want to discredit him are looking at this supposed waffling back and forth, and they just extrapolate out that Paul's not trustworthy. And, and they can succeed if they're successful in convincing people in the Corinthian church that he's not trustworthy, that he's waffling, then they've got a long ways to disqualifying him and discrediting him and eventually disposing him completely, okay? So it's always something small. It always builds into something big. It goes around the undercurrent. It just works its way through the church. You know, some certain thing happened, or I think some certain thing happened, or he said some certain thing, or whatever it is. It just works its way through underneath, and pretty soon it rears its head, and, oh, well, this is how he is, see? And so let's just discredit him, and this is what's going on with Paul, okay? And, and what happens here in Paul's answer is that he deals with his character first, so he doesn't say, I didn't come to you because, which is what he says as we get to the very end of this chapter. Did you see it? I didn't want to come to you because I didn't want to lord it over you. There was a reason why he didn't come. There were still problems there, and he didn't want to have a face-to-face -face confrontation. But he doesn't start with that. He doesn't give him the reason why he changed his mind about it, okay? He starts with his character first, okay? And, and he's going to deal with their accusations in a minute, right at the end of this chapter, and then right into chapter 2, and you can read that ahead if you want, 1 and 2, 3, uh, he deals with the actual reason he didn't come, but he starts with his defense of his clear conscience, which is going to take in his attitude. So he says this, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. So here's, here's what happens. He exposes his heart to them. He gives his defenses, and we get to see characteristics of a godly leader, and the first characteristic is devotion. Paul's models devotion to the church. Catch this, okay? This kind of helped, I think, put this in perspective. In the middle of their accusations, their insinuations, Paul's waffling back and forth. He can't be trusted. So if he can't be trusted on this, we can't really trust him on anything. Catch this. Now, Paul doesn't say this, but this is really the, the essence of his response. The only reason I ever made the plan to come to you in the first place was because I was devoted to you. You catch it? Listen, I mean, we're not talking about short distances and easy routes, Okay. We're talking about long distances and difficult times, anytime you traveled in the first century. So Paul says, listen, while you're insinuating that I'm waffling and I'm untrustworthy, understand something. The only reason I plan to come to you to begin with is because I was devoted to you. My conscience is clear. 
and that his, his desire to come to them was motivated from his devotion to him. In his heart, there's a relationship there, there's trust there, there's love. This is a commitment to their well-being. Remember, if you remember, as we finished 1 Corinthians 16, verse 24, he ended with this statement. He says this, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. And, and we said this before, and just to remind you, in spite of all the difficulty they caused him and all the accusations they caused him, he wanted to be clear and let them know that he cared. So he says in 2 Corinthians 1.15, you know, I was coming so that you might, what? Receive a blessing. I'm coming so I can give you something, right? Twice receive a blessing. He wanted to make sure they received blessing, encouragement, growth, strengthening. There was a, and there's a great illustration of that in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. We see similar language uh, in that. Paul is always about this, and I want you to see this. Paul says this in the, in, to the, in the Roman letter. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Again, we just see the heart of devotion for the church through Paul, right? Why do you want to come to us, Paul? What drew you here? What's the big deal that you want to come? Well, it wasn't for some personal gratification, right? It's something he wanted to give them. Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart to you a spiritual gift that you may be established. Paul has a longing to see them. He has a love for them. He doesn't even know them well in Rome. And yet, you can, you can call and tell me, you know, what does the love of God always do? Paul says, it always gives. What do we understand the love of God does? It always gives. What does real love always do? 1 Corinthians 13. What does real love always do, beloved? Real love always gives, right? Those are all verbs. Love is patience. Gives patience, right? Love is kind. Those are not adjectives. Those are verbs. Love suffers long and is kind. See, love always gives. Paul says, listen, I'm coming to give you something. Love always gives. It, it's self-sacrificing. It's a verb. You know, remember Amy Carmichael, a missionary in the late 1800s, served 55 years in India for, and established an orphanage and a mission. She was inspired to go by William Carey. Later, she inspired Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. So quite a great line of missionaries there inspired for each other. Here's what she said. She says this, and she would know. She never took a furlough, 55 years. They buried her there on the orphanage, and they built a huge bird bath over her grave. That's her marker, and all the birds come and drink. And that was that symbolism of all that she did for all the orphans in, in India. And so she says this, quote, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. For God so loved the world that he... Gave. So the whole thing is modeled for us. So here in Romans, Paul says, I'm coming because I want to give you something. Back in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I want to come and give you something. And we always have to come back to that, see? That's that, as an application. As we think about Paul and his devotion to the church and his devotion to ministry, see? As long as you look at ministry, that you do is a gift you give away. It helps keep your heart in the right place. And, and some, mission, some ministries are hard. If you serve in Awana, I mean, that's a grind. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful, and it's, and it's enriching, and all that, but that's a grind. And you're with those kids every single Wednesday. They've been in school all day, and now they're coming, and they're sitting in school again, and that's the last place they want to be, and you look at those little faces, and some of them, they don't want to do anything you say, and it's a grind, okay? And, and here's the deal, and there's lots of ministries that are like that, and some churches are like that to pastors, that it's just a grind all the time, always something, see? But as long as you look at it as a ministry that you give away, it's going to keep your heart in the right place. You know, Paul could get himself in trouble, and you and I can get ourselves in trouble by saying, you know, they don't appreciate the word of God that I'm giving them. 
they don't show by their actions that they're listening. They don't appreciate the work that goes into all this. You know, the old preacher said a long time ago, you know, people come to church with a thimble and take away a thimble full of what you say and they spill it on the stairs on the way out. I mean, they don't even make it to the car. And so if you look at it that way, I mean, it, it's not enriching at all. And that's not devotion, see. But if you look at ministry as a ministry you give away, and not saying they don't appreciate me for the word I'm giving them. They don't know the actions, you know, by their actions that they're listening. They don't appreciate the work that goes into all of this. You know, you want to workers. They don't have any idea how much I have to study Sunday school teachers, you know, nursery workers, right? That's the foot washing of the New Testament church, if it's not feet washing, right? I mean, it's like, Chris, you know, it's like Christmas in some ways. You know, as long as you're worried about what someone thinks about what you gave them, it's really not a gift to them, is it? It's more of a self-affirming test used to measure their appreciation of the gift or lack of appreciation really to qualify your self-worth and fuel your pride. If they liked it, then, you know, I must be doing well and I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm very sufficient. If they don't like it, then I'm, I'm terrible, right? It's kind of like this backwards way of patting yourself on the back. When it centers around us and not others, you know, you get all twisted and warped in your thinking. But there sure is a lot of freedom that comes from just giving yourself away out of a loving heart, out of a devoted heart to whatever ministry it is that you do, see? And that word blessing, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 15, that's the word charis. The best definition of this word is God's merciful kindness. And what is that? Well, that's a lot of stuff, see? That's a lot of stuff. That's, um, that's what turns non-believers to Christ. That's, uh, that's also the giving of joy, the giving of pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, loving kindness. It has as its purpose to increase faith and knowledge and and affection and encourages discipleship. That's a very broad application used in a lot of different places. He wants to give them a blessing. So what is it? Well, Peter uses the word three times in seven verses. He says this, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You want to fully inform conscious, beloved, if we want to go back to that, that's what it's going to look like. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, merciful kindness, joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, whatever it is, okay? For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called to inherit one. You get one from the Lord. You are to give them out for the one who desires life to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it for their eye, the, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is it? Uh, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. How? The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears attend to their prayers. Suffering for unjust wickedness gives you a good conscience before the Lord, we saw earlier. You're blessed, see? Beloved, you're never going to look more like the Lord than when you do one of these two things. Forgive. We've talked about this over and over again, right? You can chase down every single offense if you'd like to, and you can tell the person that they've offended you, and then you can hope that you get a response back from them that will be, I'm sorry. And maybe you will. And maybe you won't. And then you have to go from that meeting and still forgive them. 
or you can just forgive and not chase it all down and not make somebody pay and not make somebody know that they violated your rights and whatever it is, okay? And I will let you guess which one's the mature way to do it. So you can do that, and the more you forgive, the more you look like the Lord. And beloved, secondly, giving a blessing. Give merciful kindness to those who don't reciprocate it. Do good to somebody who doesn't even like you. Do good to somebody who actually does things to show you they are displeased with you, okay? You never look more like the Lord than when you do those things, okay? And in your ministry, as you give it away, regardless of what the response is, you, you are modeling with a good conscience precisely what the Lord wants you to do. How was Jesus' ministry, by the way, as he walked on the earth the first time? I mean, if we measured success by the majority of the responses, we would say that was a very unsuccessful ministry, would we not? And yet, we know that it was not an unsuccessful ministry. It accomplished exactly what the Lord wanted it to accomplish. Give joy, give sweetness, give loving, loveliness, loving kindness. You may be used by God to increase faith, knowledge, affection, encourage discipleship, whatever it is. See, you never look more like the Lord than when you forgive and you're merciful and kindness. Uh, give a blessing to other people, see. So how's Paul using the word here in 1 Corinthians 1.15? I think he's using it in the largest possible way. I wanted to come to you and give some gifts. I want to give some blessings to you. I, want, I plan to do it two times. For some of you, I would like to give forgiveness. For others, I'd like to, to show you the loving kindness of following God. For others, I'd like to increase your faith and, and the knowledge and affection of the Lord. I'd like to do all those things. I want to come to you. I want to travel to you. It was my desire to do that in the middle of your accusation against me that I'm waffling back and forth. Understand that the only reason I was going to come to begin with is because I love you. So I think it just takes in everything, see. You know, speak of the gifts of God's blessing that come from following him. Build the body. You know, I think there's a ministry model there, don't you? <laughs> That's kind of how we're supposed to do it, right? And this really indicates Paul's heart of devotion to the ministry. It, it's a heart that wants to give something that really has some substance. For what reason? Well, back to Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Same reason Paul always wants to do it. I long to see you that I may impart, I give you some spiritual gift that you may be what? Established, sterizo to fix, to make fast, to confirm you, to, to set you up, to strengthen you. I want your feet down solid. I'm coming to you because I love you. And the only reason I was going to come to you is because I love you. And I wanted to impart a couple, uh, uh, two times, double blessing to you. For the equipping of the saints, if you will, Ephesians chapter 4, 12, same type of language. These are always Paul's motivations. He's devoted to the church, so he gives himself, see. And as you do your ministry, see, you know, there's a source of all those blessings. Where is it? It comes straight out of the book, see? You understand what the Word says, you understand what a good gift looks like, and then that's what you give to those people. So you can't just pull them out of the air. It's going to retire time, it's going to require energy, you're going to give yourself away to them, and you're going to have to put a lot in there to make sure that's going to be effective, see? A big investment on your part for perhaps no response. It doesn't matter. Or it may be a big investment on your part and a negative response like Paul was getting. You're just a waffler. You're not reliable, untrustworthy, probably can't believe anything you say. And yet Paul just gives it. Because we don't want to impart to someone something that's cheap or shallow. See, this is Paul's heart. Whatever he could do for them, he wanted to do. He wanted to impart double blessing, plans change, but he wants to make sure they don't doubt his heart. So he doesn't even start by defending why he decided not to come. He starts by helping to remind them, hey, this is how I really feel about you. Regardless of how you're responding back to me, understand my motivation was to come and bless you, okay? His conscience then is clear. He wanted the church established. He wanted to be encouraged. He wanted it equipped, strengthened, 
more apt to pursue spiritual growth, whatever it is coming, and blessing the church was the way he wanted to demonstrate his devotion to the bride of Christ. Paul said in Colossians 1.28, he says, and we'll wrap up our time today with this, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, here it is, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was Paul's desire. That's our desire in ministry, isn't it? Whatever it is that you do, and nursery of toddlers, whether you're working in Awana, you're working Sunday school, whether you're teaching a, an adult Sunday school class, where you're preaching from the pulpit, whatever it is you're doing, what do you want to do? Well, we want to make sure that we present every man complete in Christ. So you're doing whatever it takes in your love for that, that ministry and for those people to make sure they are enriched. They receive a blessing, and whether or not they use it or not or assimilate it into themselves, you've done what you're supposed to do. See? Later we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, the daily pressure on me, Paul says, of concern for all the churches. Paul wants everyone mature. He's thinking about all these different churches. And you know, he may be ministering one place, and he's thinking about some church somewhere else. And so he just sits down and writes a letter to him. Paul suffered travail, internal pain, until Christ, he said, is formed in you. It was just physical pain, and, and I think he agonized over the church. And I think I can relate to Paul. Perhaps you can, too, if you've led a ministry. You know, I think it grows on you as a pastor. You, you, you lose sleep. You, you're upset stomach, whatever it is, to, to the response of people. I think as you do your ministry, and the more you're invested there, the more you, there's travail in your own heart till they, uh, till they are formed, Christ is formed in you. You know, that's when you've got to the point where you're investing at the point of devotion, okay? Man, I want them to get this so badly, right? Paul had a loving heart, had a devoted heart. He wanted to give them something. And we don't have time today because we have a missions moment right now, but in, a, in just a few minutes. But the next time we're going to move into verse 17 and beyond. We laid this foundation. I understand, I think you understand of conscience. Um, and now that we understand conscience, and Paul is always referring to it, my conscience is clear in, this, in these areas. We're going to move in. And we're going to see Paul again. Uh, he's going to recount some of the accusations they're bringing against him. Uh, but more importantly, I think, as we look at the way he responds, we're going to see Paul's attitude concerning ministry, which will, of course, be a great ministry model for us as we do ministry amongst the church. All right, let's um, bow and be dismissed in prayer. If you would, bow with me. I'd ask Bill to uh, come on up, and, and we'll uh, do our ministry moment today. Lord, we thank you today for a time to be in your word. We thank you for its clear uh, teaching to us. We thank you for the conscience that you put on each heart. Thank you for the Holy Spirit now that dwells in the lives of every believer, along with this conscience, which is this highest human court, and Lord, I pray that we'll be very sensitive to it, that we'll fully inform it. All the more reason to be in the word daily so that we understand and listen, understand what the conscience is supposed to know and then begin to hear it, reiterate those things back to us as we have that conversation inside of us of what we should and should not do. Lord, I pray that we'll be found as, as those types of people. And Lord, as we see this first this first uh, attitude of Paul's as it, re as it relates to the ministry, a heart of devotion, a love, so that he just gives himself away that the church will be fully formed, that he gives blessing even though it's not reciprocated. Lord, I pray that we'll be that kind of people too. We don't have to chase down every offense, have to chase down whatever. We're a very diversified church, plenty of different opinions and whatever. You don't have to chase down everything. Lord, I pray that we'll just be the kind of people who who are devoted to the ministry, maybe travail until Christ is formed, whatever that little ministry may be that we do as we're involved with it. We might see growth. We might see uh, a blessing come to fruition in their heart. Lord, we desire that so much. Make it even more our desire, that very pattern of our life. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. I'd like to have Bill come up, and I'll come up right afterwards and have a few announcements, and then we'll be dismissed.